0: iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store
1: Soho. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. We have a great event we're going to kick off in just a couple of minutes. So please, I'd like to ask you to have a nice warm welcome and round of applause as we bring to stage the
0: director of The Lazarus Effect, Lance Bangs. Thanks uh, for coming out, everyone. Um, I'm glad that Apple is putting this on. Uh, so the film we're about to see is is about 30 minutes long, and we began filming it basically one year ago from right now, and, and I guess it was early May of uh, of last year, primarily in Zambia, uh, mostly around the urban center of Lusaka, then kind of heading out in different directions from there. One of the women that was involved in producing the film is here uh, tonight, Rita, <laughs> um, and so we we sort of went out and tried to find people who were at the point where they were beginning to get access to antiretroviral treatment at different clinics throughout the country of Zambia. And this has been going on in a number of Sub-Saharan African countries where the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Malaria and Tuberculosis has been getting medication and supplies into the hands of a, a network of different clinics who then distribute it to the people who, uh, who qualify and, and have a low CD4 blood count and are eligible to start getting the, the medication. And the, the differences we were seeing in people was just radical and startling. You would meet people who looked like they were at death's door and, and were having trouble moving and were emaciated and, and very weakened. And then we would uh, go back in like August and September to sort of catch up with them. And, and some of them were almost unrecognizable, how much more vibrant and alive and, and healthful they were at that point. Uh, we ended up going back again in December, around the time of World AIDS Day, to sort of finish up and, and conclude a couple things and see what it was like to how that day is commemorated and played out in, in other parts of the world. Uh, so that's what you're about to see. The, the film, again, is about 30 minutes long, and then Eddie Moretti will be moderating a Q&A session afterwards if anyone wants to stick around and, and speak at that point. Thanks again for coming out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage director, Lance Bangs, and this evening's guest moderator, Eddie Moretti. All right, thanks again for, uh, for coming out and for watching the film. This is Eddie Moretti.
1: Hi, uh, I'm Eddie. I'm uh, one of the creative directors at uh, Vice Magazine and VBS, Documentary Film Channel. I've known Lance for about five years or more,
0: and we've worked together, so it's an honor to be here. Eddie's a filmmaker as well and uh, has done a lot of interesting work in political filmmaking and documentaries over the years and was involved in a film called Heavy Metal in Baghdad that is uh, definitely worth seeing. I forgot about mentioning that myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, like, you know, I
1: have, uh, I wrote down a lot of notes. Um, and I guess I, I kind of want to start with the end of the film. Because uh, it ends with images of children, and I mean, I have a lot of—I wrote a bunch of different things down as I was watching the film. Um, you know, one of the questions I had was, what was it like being around so much death, uh, stories of death, and, and, and obviously people in different you know um, states of of uh, of health. Um, but uh, but you do end the film with uh, images of children. And uh, one of the, the questions that I have is, is um, you know, what was it like to be around so many children that were facing the specter of death?
0: It was intense. Like, I thought I'd kind of braced myself before going over to make the film, knowing that I'd be around a lot of people who were ill or who were, you know, potentially dying if they weren't going to receive treatment or that had dealt with death and loss in their immediate friends and, and family in the past. And that definitely was the case. Um, there was also a huge number of very young people whose parents had been who had died and so the huge number of sort of like orphans and young people who don't have uh their their parents still alive who are being taken care of by extended family members or sort of extended community or, or elders who are kind of watching after them and you see a little bit of that in the film um and so it was grim and it was hard to deal with there were people that we filmed and befriended who who passed away you know during the time that we were making the film um but the thing that I was surprised that I didn't know going into this project that, that was kind of more hopeful at the end of that is that you can prevent the transmission from the mother to child. I, yeah, that without, was pretty amazing. Yeah,
1: I didn't know that either.
0: Without knowing much of the medical background or having followed it that closely, I just assumed that there must be blood that's transmitting directly from the mother you know, to, the, to the fetus while it's in development. Um, but it turns out that if you're careful and, and get on a kind of a regimen and are taking precautions, that you can minimize the risk of that. And that there are a number of people that we filmed uh, who didn't make it into the finished 30-minute version of this who were pregnant during the time that we were filming, who got on that sort of treatment and were able to give birth to healthy children who have tested negative so far. That's happy. Yeah, that, that was remarkable. Um,
1: I'm going to ask, by the way, I forgot to set this up. I'm going to ask a few questions here and then turn it over to uh, questions from the audience. Um, so, I mean, you know, the children are, are definitely the, the innocent victims here um, uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's the most tragic part of the story. Um, but it made me think of um, the kind of pressure, the kind of stigma that um, um, must be prevalent in these communities. And I was wondering if you could help us. Is it different? I know there's stigma everywhere when it comes to HIV. Um, but what was it like there? What are the special kinds of, of pressures people face not to reveal their... Um, their condition.
0: I think that from what we were hearing from the people that we spoke to directly, stigma is definitely a huge issue that people were dealing with, you know, in the mid to late 90s and then through the early 2000s where people were very kind of guarded and reserved and and keeping it to themselves if they suspected they might be HIV positive. And then there were some people that got lost during that time that, you know, it was kind of hard to ignore it or not acknowledge it when your father and your brothers and, and sisters were passing away from it. And then... You know, there wasn't much point of being open or coming out for some of the people prior to there being access to the medication because there wasn't much you could do and you were just basically going to be ostracized and, you know, misunderstood. And how, until how, died.
1: how intense is that ostracizing?
0: It was uh, intense. There's another woman who doesn't appear in this uh, version of the film, um, named Memory, who is sort of a young teenage girl who's maybe the first person as a young woman to kind of decide she was over it and didn't want to deal with that kind of stigma anymore. And she, been HIV positive for a while and was at like a, a boarding school among other teenage girls and heard them all kind of gossiping about her and writing you know bad things about her on the bathroom walls and just kind of called all the girls together and was like, look, I'm HIV positive, you know, let's just deal with it, I'm not going to hide or be ashamed or, or hide who I am. And then after that point, a lot of them kind of, you know, broke through their hostility they'd had to her and, and kind of got more open about admitting their own status and. And be more positive about it. The, the thing that's surprising is we went to a lot of outdoor activities that were organized for young people, whether it was like uh, concerts in a park at a swimming pool or soccer events that everyone would kind of come to. And I was actually surprised at how much the stigma had been broken through to the point where young teenage kind of people were openly getting tested in front of all their friends and classmates and not freaked out about it. And, and I wouldn't have, in my own position, I wouldn't have let a camera crew film me getting an HIV test. It, age 16, 17, by any means, you know. But they were comfortable with it, and, you know, whether it was positive or negative result, now that there's sort of a way of dealing with it, it's almost like it's transferred into being something like a chronic illness, like diabetes, that, you know, yes, you have it, and it's a bummer, but there's a way to deal with it, and you go on living with it. And that's sort of where they're at right now from the people we dealt with.
1: And so how do do they see us and the way that the West uh, deals with HIV? What's their perspective on on the problem here?
0: There's probably a full range of it. There were maybe people years ago who would have been concerned or worried, or like, where did this disease come from, and blaming the West for potentially transmitting or bringing it in because they'd read about it and heard about it in the context of being a disease that existed in America and, and France. The you gay know, community. Yeah, and, exactly. Right. And once it became something that clearly was, you know, prevalent throughout a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, I think that they sort of got more open and more, a bit, you know, able to kind of comfortably deal with it. But so... Yeah, like it was interesting to see that, at least from what I felt and the people we spoke to, that there was a time that there was more of a stigma against it, and that that sort of been but do they have this recently, impression yeah.
1: that that everyone here has free access to the medication and it's not a problem, and that they're at a disadvantage and that they're trying to catch up or you know? I think like that what... there,
0: you know there certainly was a frustration that it was something that was an option at an earlier point for people here in the West than it was to them in the situation they were in, and certainly the. Uh, the Did they blame anyone for that? Or? I didn't pick up a specific blame, and in fact I felt a lot of the people we spoke to were actually actively grateful to anyone that was with us, whether they were from Australia or Ireland or, or other countries that are part of what's going on with this in the Global Fund, that there was like a very strong sense of uh, gratitude towards the United States. And, and strangely, like we'd go into these storerooms where they had all the bags of USAID uh, soybeans and, and protein and, and food supplies that were being provided there as well. And they were conscious of where that was coming from and actually were making a point to, you know, sort of thank her. So, or so, so
1: they, they, there are organizations or people that they recognize as having moved the needle in a significant way.
0: That's correct. And in fact, this really remarkable guy, Dr. Peary, his concern is like, look, we can't rely on Western aid or expect that the U.S. is always going to be so generous or keep this coming. Like at some point there's going to be a point that there's an administration that it changes or there's a tsunami and that's less of a priority and we have to sort of figure out manufacturing here ourselves, or figure out how to you know, deal with this a little bit more on our own terms. And you know, we're grateful for all this supply, but we don't want to get overly expectant that that's always going to be there. It's like an interesting thing that he kind of threw out that we had to you know, consider and to take into account. But the work that is happening through the Global Fund to fight AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis, which receives you know, funding from a lot of different countries around the world, is what we saw that was making the biggest difference for people actually getting access to this medication. I have two more questions. Yeah. Um, there's obviously
1: a, a, another film to be made here right the causes you've covered the effects yeah. but you know have you did you think about that when you were out there is there, yeah, there are, a story you know, to tell
0: it my you know the sort of getting completely charged up and riled about that first trip in, in may about a year ago like i wanted to make a three part series about like you know how do we get here what are the conditions what can be done to improve things and it would have been this sort of epic overarching omnibus film about contemporary landscape of of HIV in Africa. And that got to be like a really unwieldy, hard thing to to break down into smaller parts. And if you mention any tangent, you have to sort of counterbalance that with like, well, then the other side is this. And, you know, here are the conditions that led to that. So what started to kind of merge was that the personalities of the four strong characters that that make up the film with, you know, the young girl, the the man, Paul. Uh, The woman, Concilia, and then the, the woman, Connie, who runs at the clinics. They're just sort of simplifying it down to letting them tell their stories and reflecting that and showing what it was like before this access to medication became available for them personally and then for their community and their country on a larger scale and where they are now that there is that sort of access and that that became what the strength of this film was.
1: And then finally, you know, um, in the complex of issues that, that Africa faces, you know, this is a, a piece of that pie, but by, by no means is, is it the whole pie. How do you feel, you know, how did it change you making this film and how do you feel um, uh, now about the continent and, and its hopes for 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 the future?
0: I was definitely, you know, excited and relieved to see the kind of progress that they're making and the, the reduction in the prevalence of AIDS that, and HIV that is happening across sub-Saharan Africa. And... The sort of, you know, there was a genuine peril that you could have had these communities and these families and, you know, potentially countries that would have collapsed from just too many people dead and you lose the infrastructure and there aren't enough grown-ups running around to run agriculture and banks and to keep the society together. And that they've managed to sort of seemingly turn that around with the efforts that they're putting into sticking to treatment and adhering and spreading information about how to minimize transmission and that was an amazing thing to see. and. If anything, what I would hope for is that the things that were making the biggest difference that I felt like I was seeing personally were the more that women sort of gained power and control of their own decisions and weren't being subjugated to outside you know, decisions made by men, which had maybe historically been part of the, the pattern that had led into this, the more things were getting better, like the kind of smart, empowered women that were learning how to you know, take charge and, and fix things was hopefully what will continue. And
1: and just one last thing, what, you know, there is a current of, of you know, hope within uh, the the issue. What Did you see a dark side or was there, um, you know, did you see an apathy or a cynicism that, that, that needs to be addressed and, and kind of fought?
0: Yeah, the danger of the dark side to me would be the risk that people here where we are that are comfortable sort of tune this out because they feel like they've heard this before and they know what they're getting into and they see Africa as sort of a bottomless pit where aid goes and there aren't really results and that with the kind of smart targeted aid that the global fund in particular does with this where they work directly with these workers at the clinics and it's not just getting handed off to some large government that might have graft or corruption within within it that this sort of you know structure where they're getting the aid directly to these clinics and people and having accountability and oversight has made such a clear difference in the people that we saw that you know the only danger is if we were to fail to continue supporting that or funding it that things could go back the other direction.
1: I mean, I mean that's kind of like a, a universal problem. People in the West feeling that they don't know where their, their, their money yeah. and their, their, their um, support goes in the end. And I think you've done a really great job showing people that there are real tangible results in, in the things that they can do here um, to help people over there. So uh, well done. Thank you.
0: Right on. Thanks.
1: So we have some questions, I think, in the back. Hi. We have a microphone. Just raise your hand. We'll come to you. Um, as a filmmaker, what talents did you use to make this film? And for people who wanted to make this kind of film or documentary, given what you've done in the past, what do you think, what advice could you give them?
0: I don't know. It was, it was a very personal film to make. Like, the idea existed uh, from the organization Red. This woman Sheila Roach there had approached uh, Spike Jones and I about how do we get a film going? about this idea that she had. She had seen you know, numerous series of photographs that, that Red had sort of had taken over the years that showed before and after imagery of people when they got access to the medication. So she knew there was an idea and a, and a story for the film there. And then I think what we might have brought to it on a personal level is just going there with a camera. Like we had a very minimal crew. We weren't able to bring in additional camera operators or people to sort of do what a normal production might do. So basically, uh, you know, May a year ago landed with a camera in my hands. and. That's how you like to work? Yeah, that's how I like to work anyway. Kind of like a a smaller, more intimate way of uh, just holding a camera, looking someone in the eyes and having a conversation with them. And um, again, Rita was there kind of coordinating and and putting that together and uh, did a lot of really patient work with finding the right people at clinics and just befriending them and getting to know them and having them open up and take them into our homes and make them comfortable with, with filming and having them open up this much. I was worried, like a lot of my background had been with things in the United States, like different... And sub-cultures in music, and right. and In the music world, yeah. And that, you know, it was uh, hoping that what I've done that's worked with people in different parts of the rural South or Appalachia or whatever would be common and work in other parts of the world, but not knowing for sure that that would be true and was relieved that, that it did and that people were as open as they were in the film.
1: And, and but previous to this, you, you hadn't really, um, you know, covered health issues in any of your work or Yeah, I guess i
0: have done some like personal things like early on that you might have seen that were, you know, dealing with, Extreme poverty in, in the Mississippi Delta and rural South and Appalachia. but a lot of the work I've done in more recent years has been, you know with musicians or with other filmmakers or, or that sort of thing. So this was you know, kind of harkening back to the earlier films I' made.
1: Hi. Uh, this film took place in Zambia, and yes. is it represent,
0: representative of what's going on in other countries in Africa, or is Zambia way ahead of the other countries? My understanding is that uh, RED and the efforts for the Global Fund are working in a number of countries, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. They've got a lot of work going on in Rwanda, in uh, Lesotho, in South Africa, and maybe we can name some... Swaziland. Yep, Swaziland and Ghana, was it? And that uh, the presentation was that Zambia was a country that's a bit underrepresented in the West, that we hadn't really seen a lot of films or information coming out of in recent years, and that was... uh, officially an English-speaking country, although a lot of the people we actually met spoke 73 different tribal dialects that were going on there. So there were a couple main ones that we had a great translator and interpreter that, that was able to speak and communicate with the people we see in the film. And that we'd also been told that Zambia had this incredibly young population, and that was a bit misleading. Once we got there, it wasn't just, like, I, I had been given the impression it was like endless 20-year-olds, like Barcelona or something, but in reality, it was a lot of people like Balia who were younger because their parents had of AIDS, and that had skewed the numbers down mathematically, and that was what, you know, the reality of what we were seeing was. So the idea was that Zambia would be this interesting place that was a bit underrepresented in the West in recent years, but that they had this effective aid that had been going since about 2004, and that there was, you know, definitely results, and the clinics were in place, and that we had good people there that we liked who were running clinics and that would be accommodating and allow us to go in and sort of meet people and see if they'd be willing to be filmed. Another question here in the second row. How are the subjects
1: who are in the film doing today?
0: They're doing remarkably well. Like the, you know, I was always terrified that someone would fail to be followed up with or, or backslide or have a bad reaction to the medication, but everyone's been doing just tremendously well. The, uh, the two adult women who are in the film, the woman Connie who works in the clinics and then Concilia who we saw in a very, very kind of skeletal state, both of them came over to New York City uh, about a month ago in early May to come see some screenings of the film and run around and explore the city for a little bit. And they're both you know, even healthier, more vibrant, and further along in their their restitution than they were in, in the footage we see in the film. And uh, Boalia, the young girl, came down with tuberculosis about a month ago, but uh, was able to get treatment and has sort of rallied back from having that as well. And then my understanding is that Paul is also doing really well, and the house that we see him in, um, some roofers had kind of come to do some more work or to repair the house, and he had mistakenly thought that was like part of you know, the filmmaking process or whatever, and we had to have people sort of make clear to him that that was coincidental, but he was very happy and, and sort of giving us credit for progress on his house. <laughs> Here in the front row.
1: Hi there. You'd seen the photos beforehand of the before and after, but from going there in such a short amount of time, did you you kind of like blown away with a, with a massive amount of difference?
0: Yeah, what didn't come through in the photographs maybe that I was caught off guard by in the film was that you would go see someone in May and you'd speak to them and they'd be a little bit listless or a little bit sort of uh, robotic in some of their answers or dialogue. And then going back, you know, even August and September, a couple of months later, they'd have so much more personality and slyness and a sense of humor and kind of be messing with you a little bit to be funny or all these other things that come out. Once you get out of the depression that sets in from being that physically ill or weakened and sort of gain more of your personality back, so much more comes across. And that was like a a really shocking thing that I don't think would have come across just as a, a photo piece. And so you see, you know, Concilia in particular is, you know, just kind of such a great personality and so funny and sly and has this great fashion sense that you realize the more you see her in the film and all these great outfits that she has with that kind of yellow sweater with the flocked almost feathery, you know, tendrils coming out of it and the combinations of like the Lou Reed black leather jacket over purple and all that sort of personality that emerges the more that someone has health and comes out of the depression that goes along maybe with being that ill.
1: Right here in the third row.
0: Hi. What do you hope your audience does after viewing this film? And also how long do the patients expect to live after they get Treatment? I don't know about a, a sort of an endpoint. Like, from what I was hearing from the doctors, it sounded like it was indefinite. At, you know, that we don't know really if it's a 30 year, or 20 year, or 50 year thing, or if it's a normal lifespan, or, or what happens long term, because it is something that's kind of come into place in more recent years. Um, what I would hope for personally with the film, we didn't put like a direct thing at the end of like, you know, send money here, or donate now, or whatever, because we didn't want to make it feel like that sort of a film. But for people that are curious and want to learn more, um, there's a Join Red, uh, Red the, the group that gets a lot of the money that's sent over to the Global Fund to fight AIDS malaria and tuberculosis. They have a lot of information. There's another website called one.org that has a lot of information. And I guess the most important thing from what we saw directly is that getting that continued support for the Global Fund, which receives money from the UN and from the United States and all these other countries, to make sure that people don't back out of that or, or scale down their contributions would be the thing that I would feel personally would make the biggest difference. And we have time for two more questions. One right here.
1: Thanks. Sorry, this is more of a comment, but you asked earlier about what talents
0: Lance used on the film and he just has a remarkable compassion for people and like I think m- total credit to Lance for like everybody's kind of answers and comments in the film and everybody that we filmed because he just had such an incredible way of just being really compassionate and kind of getting to the heart of the issue, you know, and kind of his compassion for the people just superseded like trying to make a great film, which I think is absolutely the perfect talent for a film like this. So it was incredible to watch and be a part of. All right, thank you. (laughs) One more. I noticed that uh, one of the segments showed somebody for whom the drugs did not work. So my question is, what percentage of people do, do well on the drugs and what percentage do not? From my understanding, the people that we met, at least directly, and there's probably more information beyond what my own experience is, that pretty much everyone that was getting access within a timely manner was responding well and, and, and doing all right. In that particular case of that young boy, Rodin, he was in a very remote, detached area that was very far away from any of the clinics, and his mother was dealing with like uh, maybe six or seven children total without, her husband had passed away a while ago. and. Uh, she just wasn't able to get him, or, you know, aware of how ill he was, and get him into a clinic in time to begin the treatment, and so he was pretty weakened and, and maybe even malnourished at the point that she finally got him to start the treatment, and his body just wasn't able to to handle the, uh, you know, the state it had gotten to before they they got him to access. But in all the people that we saw that were in, just shockingly, you know, there so many people beyond who's in the film, but people that would be in hospital beds and covered in sores and. Their legs were swollen; they couldn't really move, and they just looked like corpses, basically. That we would go back, you know, three months later, and they would be up on a roof, uh, putting up shingles and tiles for their kids to have a new room of of their house. And it, you wouldn't even recognize their facial structure; like they would be almost like a different-looking person. Not just that they were like had more weight on them, but that like you didn't recognize the cool chin that they had that wasn't apparent before, and it was shocking to see how much of difference it really was making in most of the people that got the treatment. So it wasn't like, you know, 20% of the people have a bad reaction or anything like that as far as my experience was.
1: I guess um I guess that's it or
0: Yeah, so if, if that's the end, there's a couple things we want to tell people about. We're going to uh there's a free iPad application uh called the Lazarus effect that has photographs, it has the full film, it has kind of some more animations that show how HIV works in the body. Um and that can give you links to get more information and to follow up on each of the main characters that are in the film. So if you have access to an iPad or you know can see one, it's a really well-designed, uh, really interesting application. I think they did a great job with it. Um, so that's available for free. And then the film itself, we want people to see it. It's running on HBO right now. If you have friends in the UK, it's running on Channel 4. And it's also available in entirety uh, for free on YouTube. So if you want to send people there to go see that, they can see the entire film. And the iPad version of it like that's on here looks great and is a great way to watch it as well. So I would encourage people to to check out those free ways of seeing it. And then uh, I think that the last thing we're going to do here is we're going to play this public service announcement that uh, a lot of people that Red work with Uh, we're involved in that sort of lets you know more about the actual cost of the medication that basically it's been broken down to a point about being roughly 40 cents a day is what it costs for the the two pills that people typically take. And so that's, uh, you know, like one in the morning and then one 12 hours later is what we saw in most people. And this is like a short PSA that was done with that in mind. I got an egg. I got gum. I got
1: bubbles. I got a hair mix. A kazoo. A candy necklace. An orange. A band-aid. For 40 cents, I got one of these. I call it really great hot. Fabric softener. I got half a song. A stamp. A
0: ponytail. <laughs> Helium. Some bling. Some fries.
1: A little this much of a Shirley Temple. This much eyeshadow. Extra mayonnaise. Earplugs. I got a mustache. 40 cents buys you this much of a manicure. An apple.
0: Sprinkles. 15 minutes of parking and a ticket.
1: Lipstick. Two pills a day is what it takes to stay alive if you're HLE positive.
0: Those bills cost about forty cents a day. Lunch bag. For forty cents, I got an egg. Thanks. Thanks.